Well, say a Merry Christmas Eve to you all. It's great having Christmas Eve fall on a Sunday because it means we get to gather and worship with the church morning and evening, remembering the coming of Christ into the world. And one day to go until Christmas means we're at a peak level of anticipation. Christmas is a time of great anticipation in America. We know that's mostly for secular reasons. This very night, countless children will have a very difficult time getting to sleep because of all the anticipation of what the morning brings, all the presents under the tree. Biblically, though, the first Christmas was a time of great anticipation for another reason. The first coming, or rather the first Christmas, represented that the coming of the Savior into the world after a very long wait. And we all know, as Chris mentioned, his, his coming would provide a gift far greater than any money can buy. As this child would grow up, live a perfect life, yet die on the cross and rise from the dead, he would purchase our salvation. Ever since the fall, the world was sitting in darkness, waiting. But that first Christmas, it was like the first light of dawn before the sun rises, where finally the the light of the world had come into the world. Now all those who trust him by faith can be saved. The coming of the Savior was indeed thousands of years in the making. And when he came, the world was so dark that most people didn't even recognize it. There were a few who were waiting with great anticipation for what would become the first Christmas. We learn, for example, in Luke 2 of a man named Simeon. It says he was righteous, he was devout, and it says he was hoping or waiting for the consolation of Israel. But Simeon was waiting with extra anticipation. That's because of this. Luke 2.26 says it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Christ. Just think about that promise that before he shut his eyes for the last time, God told him that he would see the Messiah. And lo and behold, Jesus has been born. His parents bring him to the temple to be dedicated. When Simeon saw the child, he knew By the illumination of the Spirit, God's promise had been fulfilled. And so he said this, Luke 2, 29. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Finally, his wait was over. How long was Simeon made to wait. We're not told, but we get the impression it was a long time. God did not tell him, hey, before the year ends, you'll see the Messiah. He said, before you die, you'll see the Messiah. That implies a longer timetable. So we wonder, was this years, even decades? We're only left to speculate, but this wouldn't be the first time God made someone wait a long time for his promise. And each year, Simeon would go up to the temple, I'm sure, waiting, expecting, hoping to see this Messiah. How many years was he just disappointed? Five, 10, 20. Could God have made him wait half a century for this promise? However long it was, it appears his anticipation did not wane. He counted on God's promise, and God certainly made it worth the wait. But we wonder, why would God do this? Why would God make such a promise to a faithful man and then make him wait a long time for it. We all want instant gratification, but it seems God likes making his people wait for things, and that hasn't really changed. 
Life is full of waiting. It's a fascinating and often frustrating fact of just how much of life we spend waiting for other things. We all wait for the water to heat up in the shower. We wait at red lights. We wait in a line to pick up kids from school. Don't even get started on an airline travel. Of all companies, Timex did a survey and found that the average American waits 20 minutes a day for a bus or a train, 32 minutes at a doctor's appointment, and 21 minutes waiting for their significant other to get ready to go out. (laughs) People spend 13 hours annually on hold for customer service. That is just painful. And then 38 hours in traffic, that number really spikes in big cities. They estimated we spend six months of our lives just waiting for other things, waiting in line for something. That's a lot of waiting. Sometimes, though, waiting is necessary and good. A lot of trouble comes when people refuse to wait. When you just think about how much strife and conflict results because of impatience, people did not want to wait, or even great ruin. People often just take what they want instead of waiting for it or trying to get it, and it usually leads to disaster. Each year, how many people die at railroad crossings? And it's always because they simply just did not want to wait for the train to pass. They thought they could beat it. They didn't want to wait. No one likes to wait. It can be incredibly frustrating. We want what we want now. However, as much as we don't like to wait, biblically, it's really not hard to prove the fact that God, he's very happy to make us wait for many things all the time. In fact, it's part of his good plan to make us wait for things. Patience, after all, is one of the fruits of the Spirit. And God goes so far as to purposely make his people wait all the time. Many of his promises only come after years of waiting. And the more you think about it, not only is waiting a huge part of of normal life, it's also a huge part of the Christian life. Waiting is a huge theme in Scripture. Right and left, God is constantly promising good things and then making his people wait years for them. This is not trivial or accidental, though, and God is not toying with us. He has good plans and purposes, even in the act of waiting. He's working in the waiting, and God always makes it worth the wait. And that right there is what I want us to reflect on this morning for a little devotional time in God's Word for a Christmas morning message. You might wonder where this is coming from, and a few of you might also remember this theme of waiting was the subject of our Christmas Eve evening message one year ago today. I did a very short message in the evening teasing out just this motif of waiting in the scriptures, but it was a short time. We, we barely scratched the surface, and so I, I shared with you my, my desire, was, which was to take this study way deeper and really just flesh out how grand the theme of waiting is in the Bible. But to stay on theme, I told you that I would make you wait a year for it. And so I vowed to make waiting the subject of our Christmas morning message one year in the future. And so here we are. A year has passed. Time has flown, hasn't it? And so I'm just making good on that promise. Unlike God, we forget our promises, sometimes fail our promises. And I'm not going to lie, I forgot. I, I totally forgot I even said that and did that. Someone a month ago reminded me. It's like, hey, we're waiting for that sermon. I'm like, 
Oh, well, that's, thank you for reminding me. <laughs> I know most of you have not been waiting with bated breath for this moment. You two have probably forgot all about it, but it still makes for a good object lesson on the place of waiting in the Christian life. And we will find that God's promises are far surer and greater, and thankfully he does not fail or forget his promises. They merit real anticipation and are worth waiting for. Now, with Christmas in mind, you should be very thankful to live after the coming of the Christ. That's good news. At the same time, we're still waiting. We're still waiting for this Christ to return and all that comes with it. At Christmas, we're really celebrating the first Advent. But I think one day in the future, we might have a holiday around the second Advent. But in the end, though, in this age, we're really not all that different from Simeon. We're waiting for the Messiah to come. I hope we have the right anticipation and learn how to wait well. So with this in mind, our aim this morning is just kind of to survey the scriptures in a broad sense, though, just that we might see the the big picture and appreciate God's purposes in waiting. More specifically, I want us to see in greater depth the how and the why of waiting in scripture. First, how does God make his people wait? Let's see the biblical pattern and precedent But then also shift, maybe more importantly, to the why question, why does he do it? Why doesn't he give us all of his good promises right away? He has many good purposes in making us wait. It's essential that we understand these purposes that we might wait well. So let's see what lessons scripture holds for us with this really grand theme of waiting. We'll start with this. Just first, how God makes his people wait. The how question, how God makes his people wait. It's not going to be exhaustive, just a, like I said, a broad survey of the scriptures to see how this theme of waiting is everywhere. God seems to make his people wait all the time. We have some examples of that. And we're going to be a, a quick survey. If you're fast, you can follow along in the Bible with us. We'll start with Genesis 12, Genesis 15 with Abraham. Now, you know, God made a series of promises to Abraham. These promises all revolved around a son. In the long term, God called Abraham to himself and then promised to multiply his descendants that kings and nations would come from them and that even the world would be blessed through them. But none of these grand promises would get very far if Abraham didn't have just like one son. And at the time God called him, he was old and childless. Still, as God called him, Abraham responded in faith journeying to the promised land. And there, God made him wait. Ten years passed. Just think about that. A decade passed, and he was still childless. No no son. God kept reiterating his promise. He hadn't forgotten. So Genesis 15, verse 5, for example, God tells him, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. The promise was still there. Nations will come from you. Abraham genuinely believed God, but even more waiting was in store. After this, it would be another 15 years before the birth of Isaac through Sarah. Everything God said, it it came to pass. But in total, God made Abraham wait a quarter of a century for it. Just, Just think about that. Have you ever waited 25 years for anything? Would you wait 25 years for anything? 
Another example of waiting comes from David. You know, Saul was Israel's first king. He rebelled against the Lord, and God rejected him as king over Israel. And at that point, he took Samuel, sent him to Bethlehem to anoint a new king, a man after his own heart, David. And from that moment, David was the true king of Israel, according to God. But he would not be recognized as king for a very long time. And said Saul relentlessly pursued him, tried to kill him. David, for his part, refused to take matters into his own hands. Instead, he just waited on the Lord. On two separate occasions, Saul fell into his hands, and David could easily have just killed him and taken his rightful throne. But he refused to do so. He resolved just to wait to God, for God to bring about his will on his timetable. Maybe more than anyone, David learned what it means to wait on the Lord. This is probably why so many of his Psalms read like this. Psalm 40, verse 1, where David says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. Eventually Saul died. David was made king over Judah, but it had been 15 years since God had anointed him as king. And even then he wasn't king over all Israel seven more years before that. So in total, 22 years before he was actually the king of all Israel. That's how long David waited on God's word. These examples continue all throughout the Old Testament, especially when you consider Israel as a nation. God's promises passed down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to his 12 sons who formed this nation of Israel. And God promised to, to them to multiply them, to, to bless them, to give them this land. But how long do you think it would take for God's promises to come about? A long time. Israel was made to wait on God's word a very long time. Israel's wait started out with 400 years of slavery. That's still about 150 years longer than America has been a nation. And finally, God raised up Moses to take them to the promised land. But even at that, they were disobedient. And in punishment, they had to wait more. Another 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Israel finally entered the land, but all throughout all, all the time of the judges and the kings, they were disobedient, unbelieving, idolatrous. So God disciplined them. They were exiled from their land. And again, their punishment was more waiting. 70 years of exile. When they finally returned to the land, things were never the same. And what was always true came into sharp focus that Israel's only hope for blessing, same with all the nations, would come through this Messiah. And that really brings us to really the, the ultimate example of waiting in the Bible. From the beginning, right after the fall, all mankind has been left to wait for this hope of a Savior. It's not just Israel that had a problem with God. In reality, all people, all of us, are sinful, unbelieving, unfaithful. We're all under God's judgment, justly. But redemption can be found where? It's only in this promised Savior. And going back to the very beginning, after Adam and Eve fell, God issued the first of such promises. He said, a day will come when the seed of the woman, though bruised on the heel, will, will strike a fatal blow to the serpent, Genesis 3.15. In time, one would come who would defeat sin, Satan, and death itself, that we might not live in exile from God's glory forever. 
talk about a wait. It had been a long time since God made that first promise. From that first promise down through Israel's prophets, there have been thousands of years of waiting. Why not send the Messiah sooner, a thousand years sooner? But century after century passed, as mankind languished in sin, not yet seeing the fruition of this hope of salvation. God's promises of the Savior multiplied, especially amidst Israel's failures. But, you know, eventually God went silent. Israel's hope of blessing started with 400 years of waiting in slavery in Egypt. And then their hope ended with 400 years of silence. That's the time between the Old and the New Testaments. God told them nothing. That's enough time to make you think that God forgot. or God has given up on his plan. But we know that is not possible for God. His word truly is just a matter of time. And then seemingly out of the blue, this angel Gabriel shows up to this young virgin named Mary, telling her that the promised time is at hand. Like after all this time, the time has finally come. The coming of Jesus was the culmination of every promise. Here is one who would finally bring blessing to Israel and all the nations. And that's really what the first Christmas represents. It's the fruition of thousands of years of longing. None of this was accidental, though, and God, he didn't even delay. The Messiah came right on time. Just like Galatians 4, verse 4 says, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. But the biblical precedent and pattern is quite clear. We don't like to wait for things, but God doesn't seem to mind. And he sure has no problem making his people wait a long time for the fulfillment of his good plans and purposes. That fact has not changed for us today in the church. Even though Christ has come, we're still made to wait for many things in the Christian life. Just think, even though Jesus has come, he died, he paid for our sins on that cross, we're still here living in a fallen world. Not all things have been set right yet, so ultimately we're still waiting for that kingdom glory. And then practically in this life, we're still waiting. You could argue all people are waiting for two things in this life. They're waiting for their good desires to be fulfilled, And they're waiting for their troubles to be resolved. First, you have good desires that you long to be fulfilled. And we're obviously not talking about our sinful or illicit desires, but not all of our strong desires are wrong. You may want several things that are good, that are within God's bounds. It's just that you may not get them for quite some time. You desire to finish school, get a good job with a steady income. You desire to forge deep friendships. You desire to get married. You desire to have children. You desire to see your children grow up in the faith. You desire to save up money, buy a house. You desire to advance in your career. You desire to see your grandchildren more often. The list goes on and on. These are all good desires, but the thing is in this fallen world, they may not be fulfilled. At the very least, not anytime soon. I bet many of you find yourself waiting for some of these good things right now. We're waiting 
for our good desires to be fulfilled. And then secondly, we're also waiting for our troubles to be resolved. Because this world has fallen, things, uh, they're still broken. They're still out of order. Our bodies are out of order, living in this cursed world, so they break down. People get sick and suffer. There's illnesses and disabilities. People fight chronic pain and just seek relief. Also, our, our relationships are out of order. Marriages are filled with strife. Children rebel and disobey. Parents manipulate and control. The world itself is out of order. All sorts of injustices and wrongs proliferate from cancer to drunk drivers to medical bills that threaten to bankrupt you to war. I think my my favorite Christmas hymn, we'll sing it tonight, it, it came upon a midnight clear, hits the nail on the head when it says this, But with the woes of sin and strife, the world has suffered long. Beneath the angel's strain have rolled 2,000 years of wrong. And I'll say that this world is just filled with wrong. And so I bet, likewise, a lot of you are waiting for some of your troubles and trials to be resolved. I bet we could identify more, but I think this sums up most of our waiting. Until Christ comes a second time to set all things right, we're going to find ourselves in this life waiting for our good desires to be fulfilled and for our troubles to be resolved. But the thing is, you might be waiting a very, very long time. You ever think about that? Are you okay with that? Another example, the story of Joseph is very instructive here. Joseph's example is extra helpful because unlike Abraham and David, He had no specific promise on how things were going to turn out for him. He had a dream that his father and brothers would bow down to him, but that was subject to interpretation. He had no idea how his life was going to pan out. Little did he know, his brothers would sell him into slavery in Egypt. And just after he was making a name for himself, he was unjustly accused and imprisoned. So first a slave, now a prisoner, not the life he thought he was going to have. And you know, Joseph waited in that prison most likely for about a decade, 10 years unjustly in prison, just waiting in Egypt. When would his good desires be met? He wanted to go back to his homeland. When would his troubles be resolved? Only after a very long wait. But Joseph excels in his example because despite his troubles and not knowing how things would pan out, what did he do? He did the only thing he could. Whatever was in his control, he did what was right. Everything else, he just waited on the Lord. He trusted the Lord and waited on him. And that should be our response as well. We are not in control of so much in life. But God is. We serve a God who ordains all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. And thankfully, we know for those in Christ He's using his sovereign power to do this. The key promise, Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We all know that's a main promise we bank on. Not all things are good. There are many things that are not good, even evil in this life, but we know that God will sovereignly work them out for good in the end, for the eternal good of his people. But you realize the big kicker with that promise is that that will happen on God's timetable. Like, when will we see the good? 
When will our desires be fulfilled? When will our troubles be resolved? It's up to God, and it could be a very, very long time. God's promises are sure, but will you wait on them? And if you say yes, like how long? A year? A decade? A lifetime? Could you wait until the kingdom? How deep does your trust in God go? For some people, the waiting proves too much. If they don't see God giving them what they want pretty much now, and if they don't see God fixing their troubles right away, I mean, they're out. But that is quite antithetical to true faith. As hard as it might be, faith means resting on God's promises and goodness while waiting for them to come to pass and doing what is right. Now, I know that's easier said than done. No one said waiting was easy. But I'll tell you what helps tremendously with with waiting. It's knowing why. Why God makes us wait. That goes a long way. Imagine you're stuck in a plane on the tarmac for hours with no explanation. That would be infuriating. People would start to revolt. It's not going to work. But what if at the beginning the pilot chimed in and said, hey, they're doing a quick fix on the brakes or the engine or something like that. Well, then at least the wait would be bearable because you know why. It's a good reason. You might even be able to wait with a happy heart. And so it goes for waiting in the Christian life. Why doesn't God give us our good desires right away? Why doesn't he fix our troubles quickly? He could. If only you could be equipped with that divine perspective, it would enable you to wait in faith with a happy heart. And you should know God is working in the waiting. So let's go ahead now and explore some of those purposes. The second point here, the why question, why God makes his people wait. Secondly, why God makes His people wait. Let's reflect on this why question. Why does he make us wait for that which is good? His good purposes. It shouldn't surprise you to learn God has good purposes. What are they? I'll suggest just three. First, to fulfill other purposes. To fulfill other purposes. Does God care for you individually? Yes. In Christ, is God working all things for your good? Yes, he is. But you have to realize you're not the only person God is working for. He's doing things in other people's lives as well. And his purposes don't revolve around you. Sometimes God makes his people wait because he's doing something else with someone else. You can think back to Abraham again. Okay, God promised to bless his descendants, multiply them, bring them to this land. But not right away. They're going to have to wait quite a long time. We already noticed this, but Genesis 15, verse 13. Again, God said to Abraham in advance, he says, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. He told them in advance, 400 years. That's a long wait. Why would it take God so long to get Israel into the promised land? Why not like 20 years? Why 400 years? Well, because he was working out a million other purposes. Some of those involved, we know, the nations living in the land. As God would go on to say in that chapter, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Meaning, 
There were all these other people groups living in the land of Canaan at the time, but they were incredibly, incredibly wicked, violent, pagan, idolatrous, immoral. But God was being patient with them. They merited his judgment, but he gave them ample time to repent. So part of Israel being made to wait 400 years was God's patience with these wicked nations for 400 years. That's just one small example, but, but knowing that God is ordering all things after his will, sometimes your waiting just means his working out something else for someone else. This perspective helps us respond to all the times when we're made to wait, that we might exercise our own patience, just like God does. You know, whenever someone gets hospitalized, they send in a prayer request, it's always the same. They ask to be healed. They ask for their suffering to end. And I've seen it dozens of times, and every single time, people ask for healing right away. I've not yet seen someone ask for prayer to be healed in like six months or in three months. They desire relief, like right now, naturally, supernaturally, doesn't matter. And we all do the same, not saying that's wrong. And sometimes God does heal people instantly, leaving the doctors to marvel. But the next time you are made to wait in sickness, would it help to know that God just might be working out countless other purposes through your sickness, through your waiting? Maybe you're stuck in a room with another patient. And there, they, they can't help but see that the joy you have, despite your sickness and suffering, and you get to share the gospel with them. Or maybe there's a nurse there who long ago wandered away from the faith, but one day she overhears your conversation with some church visitors, and she's just moved by the depth of fellowship you have, and she does not have that. So the next Sunday, she decides to visit a church and seek the Lord again. Or maybe you have a friend who doesn't pray much, anymore, that their spiritual life has gone dry, but they care about you, and since you've been hospitalized, they've been praying every day, their spiritual life has been reignited. God could be doing a million things through your suffering, through your trial, making us wait, most of which we'll never know about, but knowing he is sovereign over this this infinite, interconnected web of human affairs, can you just trust him and wait? Now, a second reason, this is the big one that he makes us wait, to test and build our faith. To test and build our faith. Again, think about what most people are waiting for. They're waiting for their good desires to be fulfilled. They're waiting for their troubles to be resolved. That's what we want most. But is that what God wants most for us? What is our greatest good? We would answer our happiness, our health, our wealth. But God has a different answer. His answer would be faith. There's nothing God wants more than to see in us great faith. Faith, according to Hebrews 11.6, is what pleases God the most. And what is faith? Hebrews 11.1, 1, the conviction of things not seen, the assurance of things hoped for. God himself and many of his promises are unseen to us, but faith is taking God at his word and deeply trusting him. And that depth of trust is what pleases God. Now, when you think about it, how is faith expressed? And you realize one big way is simply in waiting. 
You could say that waiting on the Lord is faith persevering. Waiting is faith not giving up on God despite not getting your desires fulfilled or your troubles resolved. You're not getting what you want, but you're still there. That's faith. Waiting is trusting. Waiting on the hope of God's word is what faith looks like. And with this in mind, biblically, more often than not, it seems God is happy to make us wait on things, both to test and build our faith. At this point, this teaching intersects what Scripture teaches about trials. Wouldn't you classify all of your unmet desires as trials? If they go on long enough, we start calling them trials. You've been wanting to get married for years, but it hasn't happened. You've been wanting to have kids for years, but it hasn't happened. You've been wanting to buy a house for years. It'll never happen. <laughs> but at this point, your prolonged, unmet desires, they're a trial. We, we would now just call them a type of trial. And then certainly all your troubles are trials from illnesses to conflicts to disappointments. Most trials involve people not getting what they want or losing what they have. And then what is the wrong response to such trials? Well, to doubt God, to abandon God, worse yet, to curse God. Like, How dare you not give me what I want when I want it? You must not be good. You must not even exist. Do you know how many people have concluded there is no God simply because, one way or another, they didn't get what they wanted when they wanted it? Now, I assume most of you haven't gone that far, but there are softer forms of cursing God when we don't get what we want. How about grumbling and complaining? How about ingratitude? How about comparison and envy? How about becoming bitter and depressed? These are all wrong responses of being made to wait on God while not getting what you want. They only end up cursing us and dishonoring God. What then is the right response to various trials? More often than not, it's simply this, to patiently endure. That's what scripture tells us to do. Realize that's just another word for waiting. You do what is right so far as it's up to you, and then you you wait on the Lord. You wait on his plan. You could be like Job's wife who cursed God, or you could be like Job who nonetheless, despite his suffering, blessed God. And Job, you realize, he had no knowledge of why he was suffering, and he had no foresight. He didn't know that in the end, everything he lost would be returned twofold. He didn't know that. But still, he trusted God. He waited on him. This is why James says of Job, this is James 5, 10, and 11, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endure. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Patient endurance while doing what is right, that's just called waiting. And that is faith. In fact, the very act of waiting is one of the means God uses to build our faith. This explains James 1, 2 through 4. You know it. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you would be perfect 
and complete, lacking in nothing. You have to gain this perspective that even in trials, God is working for your good. And sometimes, our greatest good, according to him, it's not our health, wealth, or happiness, necessarily. Oftentimes, our greatest good is just the building of our faith, which Peter says is more precious than gold. Do you, do you get that? Can you get on board with that? Because only then will it change how you wait. Then you can wait and endure your trials with a happy heart. With whatever is in your control, you do what is right. With everything else, you just submit to God. You wait on Him. Just to take this point a little bit further, consider the opposite. When you think about it, a large number of major failures in the Bible have to do with people not waiting on God. When going through a trial, when there's some unmet desire or trouble, instead of waiting on God, doing what is right, they take matters into their own hands. They try and get what they want their own way, even if it means sinning, going outside of God's bounds. And it always leads to disaster. We'll pick on Abraham a third time. Father of the faith, but sometimes an example of failure. Because you realize at first, he thought God's promise of a son through Sarah was taking too long. Like it's been a decade. It's not happening. She's too old. And so he took matters into his own hands and secured an heir, Ishmael, through Hagar. But that was not God's will, and it resulted in terrible strife. And when you think about it, do you know that Arabs today trace their lineage to Ishmael? So you could completely argue that even still the conflict between Israel and Arabs traces back to Abraham's refusal to wait. Another example comes from Israel itself. After the Exodus, Israel grew impatient with Moses on Mount Sinai. Hey, forget the fact that God just delivered them through the Red Sea, and he's now visiting them on Mount Sinai to give them his law. They could not wait 40 days for Moses to finish his business. So in impatience, they made a golden calf to worship as their God. This brought severe discipline upon the people. You see, when we grow impatient, when we don't trust God's timing, especially when we sin, we violate his word to try and get what we want, ruin is always the result. And you learn it's it's better to wait. Waiting is trusting. Waiting in hope is faith. And it is faith that pleases God. So don't give up on God if you find yourself being made to wait, even a long time. The saying doesn't come from the Bible, but it's true. Good things come to those who wait. If you want the biblical version, it's Lamentations 3.25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. He is testing, building, and proving our faith in our waiting. You can know for certain that those who trust this God and, and cling to his promises while patiently enduring, he will make it worth the wait. And that leads us to one more big reason God makes us wait. A third and final to amplify our joy. To amplify our joy. Just as a final thought, you should know that in God's wisdom, making us wait so long for his good purposes, it only amplifies our future joy. 
So look, tomorrow's Christmas, and you all know in our secular tradition, we give our kids lots of presents. They will open them up tomorrow morning. It will bring them great joy. But you know what amplifies that joy? It's being made to wait. If you just gave them all the presents you bought for them right away, it'd be very nice. They'd still be happy, but it wouldn't be the same. The impact is not there. There wouldn't be nearly as much excitement. It's the waiting that makes it special. Just that, that anticipation amplifies joy. As for us, we're waiting for our good desires to be fulfilled, our troubles to be resolved. And we've learned we may have to wait a long, long time. It's in God's hands. Realize, by the same token, we might even have to wait until the kingdom. Think back to Joseph one more time, stuck there in Egypt. He had this desire, a good desire. He wanted just to to make it back to the land of his fathers, this promised land. And he realized he never made it. He he got his way, worked his way up in Egypt, but he never made it back to the promised land. He died. But 400 years later, Moses carried his bones and buried them in the promised land. In a way, that's a fitting picture of how God will make good on his promises, whether in life or in death. And ultimately, all of God's promises come to full bloom in the kingdom. It's just like Hebrews eleven thirteen says that Abraham and others, they died in faith without receiving what was promised. Meaning they never saw in full everything God promised. But it says they were seeking a better country, the heavenly one, and God has prepared a place for them. And that is what we too are, are ultimately waiting for, our, our heavenly home, resurrection glory. It's coming for those who are in Christ by faith. And the longer you wait for it, the sweeter it will be. This is why Romans eight eighteen says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be real to us. And can you wait for that glory? Romans 8, 19 goes on to say that all creation is longing, waiting for that day. Eight twenty three. we too, it says we're eagerly waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We're still waiting for what the angel promised to Mary, that this Savior's kingdom will have no end. We're waiting for the end of sin and suffering and Satan. We're waiting for the new heavens, new earth. We're waiting for the resurrection. But only those who hope in the Lord will see it. Paul goes on to say this. Just listen carefully to these words, Romans 8, 24, 25. He says, For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope For what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. And do you see how how waiting is once again conjoined with faith? Faith is waiting. And the longer you persevere in faith and just wait for the glory that is to be revealed, the greater your joy will be when that day comes. That day will come. Do you believe that? Even if you don't get everything you're longing for in this life, do you trust that God is good and he has good in store for his people? Do you believe that the Lord knows how to satisfy our souls in the end? I want to share a thought with you that has ministered to me greatly over the years. 
Just think about all the times you don't get what you want in life. Small scale, big scale, just all the times you don't get what you want. The temptation to complain or grow bitter is huge. But if need be, just ask yourself, like, can I wait until the kingdom? If I had to, can I take this desire, this, that deep desire that's not being fulfilled, is it worth waiting into the kingdom? Can I trust God to fulfill all my needs and desires, the good ones, in his timing? He will in the kingdom, maybe not even how we expect, but he knows how to satisfy the souls of his people, especially those who wait on him. Psalm 107 verse 9 says, For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. His kingdom glory will be worth it. And so we say, Psalm 130 verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. And in his word, I hope. Now, as we conclude this reflection on this, this big theme of waiting in scripture, I want to include two quick caveats. First, don't confuse waiting with inactivity. After the Lord Jesus ascended, two angels spoke to the disciples, Acts 1.11. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stare looking up into the sky? Jesus is gone. He'll come back. But until then, we're not meant to just stand around, stare at the clouds, waiting for him to return. Everything we've learned about waiting this morning speaks to our, our heart disposition. We're to be filled with great joy and anticipation in all circumstances. But at the same time, the Lord has given us a lot of work to do, from evangelizing to serving to growing to praying. So let's make sure we are very diligent while we wait on his timing. Now, as a second caveat, not all waiting is good. Sometimes waiting is the worst thing you could do. Like when it comes to making a decision about the Lord. Scripture calls all people everywhere to repent and believe in Jesus. Not tomorrow. Today. Don't delay. Do not wait. Because today is a day of salvation. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, and then comes judgment. You don't know when that day is going to be. Your wait may not be very long. But Christ is the only refuge from God's judgment, the only door to this kingdom as he died in our place and rose again. So repent, believe in him today, and be saved. The next verse, Hebrews 9, 28, goes on to say this. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. You don't know when that day will be either. But either way, your, your only hope of glory is found by being in Christ by faith. And so place all of your hope in him today. Don't wait. Trust in Christ today. <clears throat> now, speaking of Christ appearing a second time, we know that it is his second advent that marks the beginning of the glory we're all waiting for. And that's why in Scripture, Christ's return becomes really the, the nexus for all of our hopes. It becomes this, this blessed hope. That's Titus 2.13. We are to live righteously and godly in the present age, while it says we're looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Now, Christians, at the end of the day, you know what we're really waiting for 
It's the Lord to return. That hope really replaces all of our other hopes. And functionally, practically waiting for him to return, it, it, takes place, it takes the place of all other forms of waiting. If only he would return, everything you're longing for would be made right. 1 Corinthians 1.7 says, We are awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we, are, or we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, Jesus is worth the wait. So we can say along with James, <clears throat> James 5.8, he says, You too, be patient, strengthen your hands, for the coming of the Lord is near. And in the words of Peter, 1 Peter 1, 7 and following, he says, There will be praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. He says in verse 13, Therefore, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Just that the hope of glory in Christ's return, that is the grand perspective we need in all things. That enables us to wait, and I'm certain that when we see Christ, we will say it was worth the wait. Let's go to him in prayer now. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name this morning. We, our hearts are filled with joy, anticipation in this Christmas season for many reasons, a lot of our traditions. At the same time, we need to come together as a church body to remember, to worship, to set our minds on what Christmas is about the recollection of, of the coming of the Savior into the world. Thousands of years of suffering and longing culminated in his advent. That salvation dawned, a light of hope for Jew and Gentile. The Savior came to, to save his people from their sins. We thank you for that. We remember that. We're so glad we live on this side of the cross. We exalt this risen Savior now. Yet, we still find ourselves waiting, longing for, for the finish line, for kingdom glory. For sin, Satan, death still roam this world. The sting of death is real. The world, our bodies are cursed, fallen still. We await truly the restoration of all things when his finished work will be fully applied to all creation. I pray you help us to wait well and to live with real anticipation in, in the coming of the Son of God. May we trust you. Learning this morning, you're working in our waiting. You have purposes. You know what you're doing. We can trust this good, sovereign God to work all things out in the end. If only we would just wait on him. I pray you build our faith this morning. That's what this is. It's just faith. Build it. Test it. That we'd have the proof of it more precious than gold. And helping us endure until that day. Be with us, Lord. We long and pray that Christ would come quickly. But until then, may we work diligently in all that work he's given us to do while waiting anxiously for him until that day. We know indeed you will make it worth our wait. And so build us up in that faith. It's in Christ's name we pray.